We've been in the book of Philippians since the beginning of the year, actually, I guess since the new year. And I don't know about you, but I, I think it's been an amazing study. And we're getting to the end of it today. Now, I know Pastor Lonnie would have loved to have been here to finish this book out with you, but due to his vacation and some some scheduling things, he was going to be gone this week, next week is Mother's Day, and then we didn't want to dangle a Philippians over here. So we figured we'd just kind of, you know, put it all here, and I'd, I'd, I'd finish it up with you this week. So here we, here we are, and it's really one of my favorite books. Um, I hope you've been getting a lot out of this study, just like I have. Every time I go through this, this, uh, this book, I get more and more out of it. So how relevant is this letter? Let me ask you some questions. Where, where are you going for joy? Paul writes about true joy here. He, he himself radiates a contagious joy. Though he writes from a Roman prison, he can say, I rejoice, so you rejoice. Paul reminds us that ultimate joy isn't derived from comfortable circumstances, but it comes from a living, vibrant communion with Christ. He doesn't say, look at my house, now rejoice. Or look at my wife, look at my kids, look at my bank account, and rejoice. No, he says, look at Jesus, like I am, and rejoice. What about this question? Where are you going to find meaning and purpose in your life? Well, welcome to Philippians. Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Do you need Christian friendships that are deep and encouraging? Well, this letter provides incredible application for building and sustaining true community. Does our church need to grow in unity? What church doesn't? Then read this letter. Though Paul loved this church and refers to it as joy and crown in Philippians 4.1, disunity still exists there. He gives instructions for us as we seek to unite in the gospel. Whether they know it or not, this letter is actually a favorite among many Christians. Just stop to consider how many coffee cup verses are in this letter. You know, those, those verses you find on a coffee cup or on a t-shirt or on a Facebook meme. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. 121, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. 2.12, therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2.14, do everything without grumbling and complaining. Philippians 3, 13 and 14, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, 20, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 4, 6 and 7, don't worry about anything. But in everything through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And finally, Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. 
You know, I didn't even mention the incredible Christ hymn in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Many Christians have built their lives on these rock-solid verses in Philippians, and rightly so. But unfortunately, a lot of them have also really taken them out of context, which we will see a little later on in this message. So that's the letter that we've been studying for the last five months. So today, let's look at the final part. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, because once again you renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with a little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the manner of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my need several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. But I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send you your greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Father, we just come before you this morning and are so thankful for your word. So thankful for the truths that we find there, Lord. So use this time, this text this morning to speak truth into our lives. And we pray this all in your son's name. Amen. Now, as we dive into this text, there is just so much to unpack here that we could be here for hours. But for the sake of time, we're going to boil it down to three points, just three truths from this text. Now, don't get excited that this is going to be a short sermon because I have seven points under each three of those truths. But no, I'm just kidding. Three truths from this text about doing all things through Christ. Number one, let your ambition be Christ. Let your ambition be Christ. Now, ambition in our society has really gotten a bad rap. To say say somebody that is ambitious tends to have a bad connotation. We think of selfish, greedy, cutthroat businessmen, kind of like Michael Douglas in Wall Street. And selfish ambition is wrong. James 3, 14 through 16 says that selfish ambition is the root of all kinds of evil and disorder. On its face, being content seems at odds with ambition. But as you'll see, that's not necessarily true. In order to be rescued from selfish ambition, we have to take godly contentment mixed with godly ambition. Think about these examples. It was ambition that led 
David to expand the borders of Israel. It was ambition that led Solomon to build the temple. It was ambition that led Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. It was ambition that led Paul to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. Jesus himself was driven by an unparalleled ambition. The gospels say of Jesus, zeal for for God's house has consumed him. Zeal, that could be translated ambition for God's house. When God acts contrary to what we want, disappointment is understandable. But when disappointment begins to consume us and define us, something much worse is at work. And it's called discontentment. Discontentment. Now, discontentment rears its ugly head when our ambitions are frustrated. When you have something perfectly planned and God seems to bail on his part, so we stew in self-pity and misery. Discontentment can be a sign that maybe... Maybe our ambitions weren't as godly as we thought they were. So what do we do? What do we do when dreams in life don't intersect? When life seems to force us down rather than lift us up? Well, let's take a look at what Paul has to say about this. Look again with me at verses 10 through 12. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with a little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or need. Things are not going well for Paul at this time. His career has taken a pretty substantial turn for the worse. He's in prison. People are telling lies about him. Other people have taken credit for his work and then trashed him. That's happening to Paul. And he's, he's unable to be with those that he loves. He loves this church that he's writing to. And, and they're in danger. They're getting some bad teaching. And they're being persecuted for what they believe. He's desperate to protect the church, preach and preserve the truth, and work out the pressing problems. Those were his ambitions. I mean, they seem pretty honorable, right? Surely God would spring him from that jail so that he can go and address all these. But he doesn't. Paul couldn't do anything about it. The God who had sent him out now had him confined to a prison. No phone, no internet, no video conferencing, no network with other leaders. The only way to act on his ambitions were inefficient and vicarious. Letters and messengers. If that was me, man, discontentment would already be there. In fact, that's when most of us grow Discontent when things aren't turning out like they're supposed to. You think, by this time, I should be in this leadership position. Or by this age, I wanted my career to be here. By now, I should be making this much money. At this age, I should have been married. I should have kids. I should have traveled here or accomplished this by now. And listen, those things aren't wrong desires. They can be healthy signs of godly ambition and spiritual maturity. Desiring positions of leadership, success, marriage, those are all good things. 
But it's how we respond when our ambitions are disappointed that reveals whether they are godly or selfish ones. So how does Paul respond? He didn't have what he desired, but, but he knew he had something better. Verse 11, he says, I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. You've got to hang on for a minute here. Paul was in prison, but he's not in need. He wants that to be clear. He's grateful for their support, but he doesn't need it. Not because he's rolling in cash, but because he's learned something in life. See, Paul has what the Puritan preacher Jeremiah Burroughs called the rare jewel of Christian contentment. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul's sitting around thinking about puppies whistling, don't worry, be happy all day. He was okay with where God had him. He was content and at peace with where he was. Contentment means being satisfied and at peace with God's will in all situations. In this letter, we see an interesting tension in the life of the believer. On one hand, in Philippians chapter 3, we're supposed to reach forward to what lies ahead, pursue the prize that is Christ Jesus. But we're also supposed to be learning to be content in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. It's a little confusing. Hunger for more, but be happy with where you are. And that's exactly it. Hunger for more, Be happy with where you are. Paul's ambitions were God-centered rather than Paul-centered. So he was able to live with them being unfulfilled. He hungered for more but was happy with less. He could be at peace with the present without abandoning his hopes for the future. Contentment is what happens when godly ambition trumps selfish ambition. And when that happens, we can be at peace with whatever comes our way. Easy peasy, right? No problem. Yeah, not so much. It'd be a lot easier if contentment were like in a pill form or they could bottle that and you could just pick it up at H-E-B and you're good to go. But that's not how it works. I do find comfort in this next phrase, though. Paul says, I have learned. That tells me that this didn't come easy for Paul. It wasn't natural. It wasn't a little perk that was included in his, com- in his conversion. You see, there's a secret to it. He doesn't just tell us that he's content. So you should be too. Get on with it. No, no, no. He's going to tell us how because there's a secret. So we all kind of lean in a little closer. Getting ready to hear the secret. And he gives us one of the most often quoted yet misapplied verses in the Bible. Philippians 3.14, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Here's what Paul isn't saying. He isn't saying, I can break these chains, body slam these guards, and run out of this prison at a 4-4 speed through Christ who strengthens me. He's not saying that. You know, a lot of people love to quote this verse for inspiration to achieve their dreams, and that's great. Often they're well-intended, just uninformed. You know, it's not a question of their motive, just their exegesis. I can't dunk a basketball. 
No matter how many times I quote Philippians 4.13, I am never going to be able to dunk a basketball unless I get a running start, jump off a picnic table, and try to dunk it. And I guarantee you that's not going to end well. It's not a problem with my unbelief. It's a problem with ability. The phrase, all things, has to be governed by the context. The context is about contentment in material possessions and circumstances. Philippians 4.13 is not about chasing your dreams, following your passion, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, accomplishing anything you want with God's help. No, it's, it's the testimony of those who have Christ and have found him supremely valuable, joyous, and satisfying. In a life of extreme highs and and lows, Paul has found the great constant security, the great centering hope, Jesus Christ himself. This is the secret. Christ is enough. Christ empowers us to be content. True contentment comes by comparing what we have to what our sins deserve. Which means true contentment can only be found in the gospel. There, we're reminded that apart from Christ, we are spiritually wretched, lost, miserable, broken before God. Even worse, we stand powerless to alter our circumstances. Worse still, we don't want to alter our circumstances. Our life is hopeless. But in his unending mercy... God came to us in the person of Christ. And through his substitutionary atonement on the cross, we became spiritually rich beyond our wildest imagination as we are adopted into the family of God. We, who deserved perpetual punishment, received an internal inheritance. We were deserving nothing more than hell. And we got heaven. Do you have everything you desire? Me neither. But we have more than we deserve. In order to find true contentment, let your ambition be Christ. Number two, let your provision be Christ. Let your provision be Christ. This, these next verses in this letter are overflowing with love and warmth. Paul loves this church and is grateful for what they have provided. Look at verse 14. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. The fact is that they were the only believers in the area to support him at that time. Verse 15. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the gospel or in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my need several times. So Paul was extremely grateful to, to the Philippians for their support, especially since they were, they were a small kind of startup church under persecution themselves. But even by the time he had reached Thessalonica, which was where he went to when he left Philippians, by the time he reached there, they were already finding ways to help and were asking what part they could play in this great ministry. And then Paul says, verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. Paul wants them to know that his joy isn't due to the the fact that they've given him a gift. 
He's not pressing the importance of giving because he wants to get rich. He's, that's not his motive. Why is Paul so happy about the Philippians' partnership? He says, I seek the profit. That's what Paul's after. He wants the Philippians to bear fruit. He's happy because the Philippians are acting like Christians. Paul opened this letter praying that the Philippians would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. And here is one form of fruitfulness. Generous giving. Paul also points out the eternal importance of giving. As he says, you know, Paul is pleased because he knows God will bless the believers for laying up treasures in heaven, not on earth. We need to live with this divine perspective. God will honor people's faithfulness and fruitfulness in this life. Alistair Begg, when he was talking about this passage, he he says, well, it's not a bad idea to have an IRA, you know, an individual retirement account. Every believer should have an IEA, an individual eternal account. Laying up treasures in heaven. Laying up treasures in heaven. Paul's example is a great lesson on Christian courtesy. In his letters, Paul doesn't normally simply thank people. He thanks God for God's grace in them. And he does it right in front of them. Basically, he comes to these believers and he says, I rejoice at the grace of God displayed in your life. Or I thank God for every time I remember you. Or as verse 18 says, your provision is a fragrant sacrifice to God. A sacrifice with which God himself is pleased. He is full of joy because the provision he received from them is through the provision they have in Jesus Christ. And he reminds them in verse 19 that my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. See, the Philippians supplied Paul's needs sufficiently. And now Paul assures them that God will supply all their needs according to his infinite resources. Paul isn't promising the church that God will provide for their greed. He's promising the church that that God will provide for their need. On one level, Paul surely has material provision in view here, but we shouldn't limit the application to that dimension. God also supplies every spiritual need, including the ability to be content and to find sufficient strength in Christ. Paul is saying that God will provide everything we need to live. In Christ. He then bounces out of this promise with an eruption of praise to the Father. I love how Paul does this. He's just just going on in letters and then all of a sudden, an eruption of praise. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. I can't think of a more appropriate response to the God who has provided for our salvation and continues to sustain us uh, spiritually and physically. Paul bursts into praise when thinking about the Father of glory, you have to admire the fact that Paul's in prison, yet is soaring with a heart full of praise. We would soar too if we pondered anew what the Almighty can do. Great is his faithfulness. Let your provision be Christ. Number three, let your treasure, your treasure be Christ. Paul tells the church to greet all the saints. Who are saints due to their position in Christ Jesus? He opened the letter with a greeting to the saints. Now he closes with a similar expression. 
They share a common bond because of their relationship with Christ. He also sends greetings from the brothers, verse 21. And once again, we see that Paul rarely, rarely lives an isolated life. He, he lived his Christian life in community, even when he was in prison. He then broadens his, his warm greetings by sending greetings from all the saints. I love this verse. You can almost see Paul smiling with the irony here. He says, all the saints who belong to Caesar's household. Paul may be in prison at Caesar's pleasure, but the gospel has penetrated Caesar's own house. John Calvin, speaking of this, says it is, it is evidence of divine mercy that the gospel had penetrated that sink pit of all crimes and iniquities. It's important that no matter what is going on to remember who is finally in charge and how he works. Paul closes with a word of grace. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. He opened with a grace blessing in chapter 1, verse 2, and now he closes with one. You know, this, this remarkable letter is saturated with grace from God's promise of completing what he started, chapter 1, 6, to the promise we have of being with Christ, chapter 1, verse 23, to the stunning self-emptying of Christ, chapter 2, verse 7, to the imputed righteousness of Christ, to believing sinners, chapter 3, verse 9, to the fact that we have a heavenly citizenship, 320, and a Father who hears our prayers and gives us peace, 4, 6, and 7. And a Father who supplies all our needs, chapter 4, verse 19. We need to know this grace more. And we need relationships saturated with grace. We should indeed praise him and treasure him for his grace and favor. Let your treasure be Christ. So we should let our ambition be Christ, our provision be Christ, and our treasure be Christ. Let's think about Paul for one more moment. When Jesus called Paul, he didn't tell Paul to add a little Jesus to his life. Add a few tweaks to his morality. Now he called Paul to a whole new basis for living. He said, Paul, everything that you look to for security, I want you to walk away from. Everything that you have spent your life building, I want you to walk away from. Because I want to become your ambition. I want to become your provision. And I want my kingdom to become your delight. What kingdom are you living for? Does that characterize you? Following Jesus is not just adding a little Jesus to our lives. It means making him our ambition and provision for the future and his kingdom our delight. So let's think about this for a moment. All of us, all of us in this room have something or a set of things that we look to for provision or for security. That's what we look to for our treasure. That's what we love. For example, many of you... Succeeding in your career. Success in your career helps you have identity and to make sure that you can provide everything that you need. Having enough money in the bank is security. Some people live for their hobbies. That's why they spend so much money on them and so much time on them. 
For some students, getting into the right school and making the right grades is security. Security for the future. For some, it's getting married, having a family, a comfortable life, because that's what the good life is. That's security. That's treasure. Listen, following Christ means letting go of all of that as your primary ambition, as your primary treasure and provision, and making him the source of all of those things. And if that doesn't sound really difficult to you, then you probably haven't really thought through it. That's why so many people miss this. That's why so many people stay religious, but never actually become followers of Jesus. Because they don't know what it's like to take their hands off of everything and say, Jesus, it's all yours. You show me where you want me to go and what you want me to do. You're my ambition. You're my provision. You're my treasure. I've heard this described as a Copernican revolution of the soul. I'm sure you guys remember science class, right? Know who Copernicus is? I should be looking down here. You guys probably are a little... Copernicus? You know who Copernicus is? Right. Copernicus, what did he discover? He discovered that everybody at that time thought the earth was the center of the universe, right? And everything revolved around the earth. Well, Copernicus discovered that Earth wasn't the center of the universe. In fact, Earth orbited the sun. And except for a hunk of rock called the moon, nothing orbited the Earth. That's a Copernican revolution. Because we're not at the center of everything orbiting around us. We're actually orbiting around things much larger than us. This is a Copernican revolution of the soul. Many people come to church, come to God to figure out how to get God back in orbit in their life. God, how do I get you as part of my family? How do I get you as part of my career? How do I get you as part of my eternity? That's the wrong question. You don't come to God to add a little bit of him to your life. You have to realize that this isn't even your universe. You're not the center of anything. You are going to orbit him. You have to start answering what purpose he has for you in his kingdom. Which means that he has to become your ambition. He has to become your treasure. He has to become your provision. His kingdom has to become your delight. The message of Philippians is that life is lived for him. To him, through him, with him, about him, and in him. But you first must know him. You first must know him.